Hello and welcome to Perspectives, the APD's podcast which explores contemporary issues related to torture prevention and dignity in detention. I'm Almudena Garcia, APT's Digital Communication Advisor, and this episode is the second in a series on the Mendes Principles on Effective Interviewing, a new approach to end coercive interviewing. Our Deputy Secretary General, Audrey Olivier Morault, spoke with Ruth Sekendi, who leads the Directorate of Monitoring and Inspections with the Uganda Human Rights Commission. We know the first hours of detention are when people deprived of liberty face the greatest risks of torture and treatment, especially when they are being questioned about the crime. The Mendes Principles set out an effective alternative to coercive interrogations. They are designed to support investigators collect reliable information using rapid-based interviewing techniques. They also uphold the rights of those being interviewed by ensuring that key safeguards are respected in practice. The Mendes Principles were developed over four years by a multidisciplinary team with expertise in policing, investigations, human rights, psychology, and other disciplines. Ruth Sekindi is a highly experienced lawyer working with the Uganda Human Rights Commission. Her work involves monitoring police stations, prisons, and other places of detention across the country. She knows the experiences of detainees and has been a vocal advocate to end torture and ill-treatment. She also understands how and why police in her country work the way they do. She shares her insights as a member of the steering committee responsible for drafting the Mendes Principles. My role in the process of drafting the principles uh, was more of being in the steering committee And initially, we were divided into two groups, one for investigations and the other was for the legal safeguards. And I was honored to be asked to head the legal safeguards group, which was not only a daunting task, but very interesting. I worked with amazing experts from around the world uh, who came up with um, amazing views. There was meeting of the mind, And I saw a lot of commitment and willingness to ensure that there is change when it comes to effective interviewing and addressing issues of torture and ill-treatment. And so um, through all this and the discussions at the steering committee, which was well guided by Juan and Mendez and APT really steering the process, particularly Mark Thompson, I think we, we, we later on came up with a very good document that was evidence-based, that was based on uh, legal principles and international rights standards. Yeah, and the commitment and the hard work that was put in by the steering committee and other players as well as APT is really commendable. Thank you, but also congratulations for this excellent piece of work. Everyone uh, comments uh, how excellent the document is. Um, so Ruth, now from your point of view of, um, as a practitioner, as director of monitoring and inspections of the Uganda Human Rights Commission, what is the added value of the principles for torture prevention and also for law enforcement? The principles are very important because they are practical 
And for once, we have an international document, well-researched, well-documented and well-written that addresses issues of effective interviewing and in relation to the legal safeguards. These principles give guidance on what should be done to address issues of persons in conflict with the law. And the principles are very important because they guide law enforcement on how to interview, effective interviewing, without resorting to torture and ill-treatment or coercing victims. And I find them very important because they bring out international human standards on what should be done. They highlight issues of vulnerability. Mm. How do you deal with a person in a vulnerable situation? This is often ignored. And uh, many times law enforcement looks at someone as only a suspect, but forgets other aspects that are related to this person that may affect the investigation. For example, if you're a refugee, or whether it is age, and the issues around age, whether someone has a hearing impairment, whether someone is an interpreter, whether someone has gone hungry, it's all those little things that may affect an investigation and you may get the wrong information from a, from a suspect or someone being interviewed. So then the principles highlight issues, for example, vulnerability, issues of accountability, issues of training law enforcement. What should law enforcement know? If we are going to monitor as an NHRI, to monitor uh, the dealings or operations of law enforcement, what are the standards that we hold them accountable for? What are the standards of accountability? Now, the principles make it easy because they highlight the standards of accountability and what should be done. So then these principles become a checklist for NHRIs, persons like me. And also when we are monitoring and visiting places of detention, what should we look out for? And so they guide, they give very practical guidance to law enforcement, but also they give uh, guidance to prosecutors and lawyers and judges on how evidence may have been received. And they give an alternative mm. to torture because when you use the principles, it's highly unlikely that someone will resort to torture. So that then uh, is a great alternative for law enforcement. You've covered so many issues already and the added value of the principles for torture prevention, for NHRI, for law enforcement and other actors. And you've hinted in a few issues we'd like to discuss a bit further with you, pulling on all your expert insights. So from your experience uh, in monitoring also detention in Uganda, uh, do you share the findings that the highest moment of risks are uh, in the first hours or first moment of detention? Uh, have you seen that some legal safeguards containing the principles, reinforced by the principles, when they really implemented, they also contribute to decrease these risks? Yeah, I, I hold the same view because in my work, 70% of our cases are related to torture mm. and ill treatment. And out of this, for all the cases that related to torture, cruel and human degrading treatment, 99% of these cases or the persons, the victims, indicated that they were tortured in the early stages of arrest. And why? It's a fact that 
when law enforcement arrests suspects, they want easy confessions, they want to solve complaints or crimes very easily, and the first thing they do is to sometimes brutalize or torture or subject victims to cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment. Uh, so if this then is the issue, then it's very important that we have a legal document, we have guidelines on how investigations, interrogations, interviewing should be done, because this is the area which is the problem. Because law enforcement does not torture people because they're criminals. It mainly tortures them because they need to win a case. They want to take their case to a court of law and win. They want a confession. They want to know where the, uh, the, the stolen goods are. They want to know where the, 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 the weapons have been hidden. And this is why people get tortured. To get confessions, to inform them, to solve their cases. And so that is where the principles come in. As uh, an NHRI, then it is very important that uh, we emphasize on the principles because they give guidance and help us solve this vice. But also law enforcement has always asked, what do you think we should do? Mm. What alternative are you giving mm -hmm. me? This guy has killed seven people and I need the weapon. Mm -hmm. And really this is a ticking bomb scenario. They will just want to, to justify their actions. But many believe that torture actually works. And if this is their belief, and they think that they have solved a number of crimes because of ill treatment and torture, then we have to give them an alternative. Because when we are training law enforcement, they give us incidents where they have solved crimes by slapping up or beating up people or suspects. And if they feel, and they actually believe that it works, we have to give them an alternative of getting confessions and getting information through science. Now, the principles then encourage the use of science because if you do that, then I don't need your confession. I can find the facts without necessarily resorting to a confession. And I think the principles also emphasize evidence obtained as a, as a result of, of torture is an inadmissible in court. That's a legal principle. But really, it's, we've continued to torture people. So it's very important that then we dissuade law enforcement from acts of torture and ill treatment so that then they can find an alternative to win cases. I think you've mentioned so many added value and innovative features of the principles and the practical aspects uh, for law enforcement. We focused a lot on, on the positives and what they represent for law enforcement, but also for NHRIs. Do you see any challenges in particular when it comes to implementation? Also looking at, um, at your country and, and, and the region? Yes, uh, but uh, when we talk about challenges, I think we should first look at the positives, which we have dealt so yes. much about. <laughs> And just even to add on the positives, the, the way the safeguards are intertwined and brought into the principles and linked very neatly with the investigation is amazing. They are blended in so that the investigator knows the safeguards when they're interviewing. This is very important because the principles make the legal safeguards a reality 
during the investigation processes. If the investigator or, or the interrogator knows the legal safeguards, then it will limit the chances of subjecting this person to cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or even torturing them. Now, the challenges that we may anticipate, if I can speak for the African region, is one, well, it's another international guide or their principles, yes, but we are not bound by them. So it, then it calls upon us and everyone, every human rights defender out there and every practitioner, legal practitioner, to ensure that we popularize the principles and that we highlight the relevance of the principles and the beauty of the principles and why they should be implemented in our different countries, in our different regions or uh, continents. The other challenge that I anticipate that may need uh, a lot of work will be the training and the different laws that we have in our countries. It may call for one amendment or ratification of instruments, maybe the ratification of the option of protocol. It may call for the ratification of the UN CAT for, for states that have not ratified them. Because if you have not ratified the UN Convention uh, against torture, then the principles will really not make sense to you. So it's very important that we ensure that there is ratification of the UN CAT, the ratification of the OPCAT, and then the principles will make a lot of sense to those states as well. There's also the aspect of training law enforcement and attitude change that I anticipate because you are changing things or beliefs and attitudes that law enforcement have believed for years. Many have believed that actually beating up criminals works, that criminals deserve to be beaten, they deserve to be lied to, to be coerced, they deserve to be treated like trash. And now we are coming up to say, respect these people. They are human beings. They have legal entitlements. They deserve to be treated with dignity. They have to unlearn the things that they learned from way back when. And that may take time. And the time is not on our side. We want it like yesterday. I, and I think we should go into the police training schools, law enforcement training schools, and make the principles part of the curriculum. I think that will go a long way into the change of attitude, particularly the young, the new cadets, to have new ideas towards enforcement. The other challenge that I see or anticipate uh, would be the cost. When we are bringing these principles, they come with financial implications. We are talking about how do you set the interview room? We know that it's not the reality in all countries. Some of us have small, even the police officers <laughs> lack places to sit. Do they even have phones in their stations? Do they have the space? So um, while the principles are good, they also call for investment in law enforcement to enable them work appropriately. Very inspirational, Ruth. <laughs> Thank you so much for setting the path in a very practical way. There are challenges, but also opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. For change. You've mentioned what NHRIs could do with the principles. They can use them as a checklist. They can use them as a, um, a monitoring guidance on whether legal safeguards and um, interviewing and in investigations are conducted uh, properly. I'd like maybe to hear your views 
about what else a naturalist could do with the principles, maybe to help dissemination or uh, NHRIs can do a lot when it comes to the principles. NHRIs have a very, very wide mandate. And because the NHRIs are the watchdog of the state and the promoters of human rights in their countries, it's very important that NHRIs are on board. One, they provide a monitoring role where they monitor acts of all government agencies and all actions. And because they have that, they have a role to monitor the operations of law enforcement, including interviewing, interrogating, and how police does its work. That way, they can hold law enforcement accountable. NHRIs have an advisory role to advise states and uh, state institutions on how to ensure that human rights are respected. So that advisory role then can help them bring, pick up the principles and advise law enforcement on the standards they should observe and how they should do their work. And NHRIs also receive and investigate complaints. And the Mandes principles can guide NHRIs on what to investigate, how to investigate, and what to look out for during investigations. NHRIs have a role to train, create awareness, educate, sensitize, and the whole nine yards. And the Mandes principles are really the right place to be and to start so they can pick up the, the the principles and come up with very good guides or IEC materials for law enforcement when they go to the training schools of law enforcement or they're invited these are the principles they should be using when training law enforcement NHRIs also have a role to ensure that there is access to justice for victims. And if you're talking about access to justice for victims who have been violated, who have been abused, then the principles are the right guide to use when they're ensuring that there's, uh, there's any violation, including training prosecutors, magistrates, and uh, judges, okay? They can use the principles during the training of uh, 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 judicial officers to train them on what to look out for during adjudication, what are the standards, the human rights standards? And the principles then become the human rights standards that they should be using for training, for law enforcement, for training for judicial officers, for accountability. And they should also, when we're talking about enforcement, they should use these principles to ensure that they're enforced in every country. And I think they're great principles to use. Ruth Sekandi is head of the Directorate of Monitoring and Inspections with the Uganda Human Rights Commission. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Perspectives. We'll be back soon with another episode in this series exploring the Mendes principles. And if you have an idea for us to cover, we'd love to hear from you. Contact us via email on apt at apt.ch or find us on our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to your company next time.